0: I once heard of a child who was making her way out of a worship service with her parents following uh, one Sunday when she uh, went through the line as was her parents' custom and had the opportunity to greet the pastor. And the little girl uh, this morning had her brow furrowed a bit. She had a question on her mind. She had looked over at the wall in the church building and she would noticed all of these names put up there on a plaque. And so she she said to the pastor, Reverend, uh, what are all of those names on that wall over there? And the pastor uh, kindly replied, oh, those are all of the people of our church who died in service. And the little girl nodded understandingly and she said, was that at the 9 o'clock or the 1045 service? (laughs) We laugh, I think, in part because we can understand the confusion of that little child. We know that there are times when our worship services must seem to the young or the young at heart as if they had a certain deadly quality to them. I remember as a little child... Feeling that myself, I remember Sunday mornings on more than a few occasions crawling commando style across my parents' bedroom floor to turn off their alarms in the hope that we wouldn't have to go to that deadly place. And uh, these days, of course, uh, some of us uh, can resonate with the a quip that uh, Leonard Sweet, a scholar, once made in which he said to say that some churches worship has become as dull and lifeless as a museum would be an insult to museums. And these days, many museums are places of interactivity and adventure and excitement that put some church services in some places to shame. Even if you might not go that far in your own critique of your own personal church experience, I imagine you can join with the words spoken by Teresa of Avila, one of the great uh, spiritual masters of the church, when she says, O Lord, from silly devotions and sour-faced saints, deliver us. This is why I think there's always great value in taking a very close look at what the 100th Psalm has to tell us about worship. Because in this familiar text, the psalmist is reminding us that God is looking for a quality of speaking and singing and serving in worship that is anything but deadly to him or to anyone else. The instructions that we find in this particular text, I need to be bold to say, are not just for Pentecostals or for youth group members. They aren't for primitive tribesmen or for those who by personal temperament just like to let it all hang out. The message of this psalm is not just for the people here in this service or in the service taking place over in our contemporary worship auditorium. This teaching isn't earmarked especially for one particular person or type of person at all. The text plainly says... That these instructions are to apply to all the earth. To all the earth. That would be you and me. That would be all of us. So, what is all the earth meant to do in worship? That's, I think, the relevant question for us as we look at this text today. What is all the earth meant to bring to worship? Well, I want to touch today on just three more things that this psalm tells us ought to characterize the worship of any biblically faithful Christian or congregation. And as we go through this list, I'm inviting you to ask of yourself, are these qualities that you're bringing now? uh, Does this seem to characterize the kind of worship that you experience when you come to this place or one like it? For one thing, we're told here that we're meant to express gladness when we worship. I'm always uh, fond of the remark that our, my colleague Noelle Combs will make sometimes uh, to the choir at practice times in which she will say, if, if you feel joy in the Lord, inform your face. She will say, make sure there's integrity and authenticity and connection between the things we're saying. And the way we are expressing the emotions that we're talking about. The psalm says, and I quote, Worship the Lord with gladness. I'm not a great uh, biblical scholar like Richard Allen Farmer. I wish I could unpack this verse with all of the the passion and the clarity that uh, he brings from the black preaching tradition. Uh, but I will pass along something of what Dr. Farmer once observed about this particular text. He says, let me tell you what this verse means in the Hebrew. It means, worship the Lord with gladness. And let me tell you what it means in some of the other ancient languages. It means, worship the Lord with gladness. Let me tell you what it means in some of the other versions of the scripture. It means, worship the Lord with gladness with gladness. It means just what it says in English, says farmer, that worship ought to have a certain joy to it. It ought not to be drudgery. We ought not to drag ourselves up in the face of God as if the more I look like I'm in pain, the uglier I can get, the more God will somehow be pleased. To encounter God ought to be An inspiration for gladness is what the Bible is telling us here. The shepherd boy David once said, I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. I doubt he was creeping commando style across his parents' bedroom floor to keep them from going to the place of worship. For him, for David as a boy, worship was a place of gladness. Are you glad when you come in here? Are you glad to be in the presence of God's people and to be in communion with God? Or are you like that boy that I read about, that son, whose mother woke him up one early Sunday morning to go to church and who said, oh, Mom, I don't want to go. Give me two good reasons why you should not go. His mother said, that's easy, said the son. I do not like the people there and they do not like me You give me two reasons why I should go. And she replied, because you're 61 years old and you're the preacher. (laughs) I had that conversation with my mom just this morning. (laughs) Not really. It really is important to remember that none of us actually has to be here in worship. Uh, There is no law that compels it. There is no social requirement anymore that you do it. Our kids won't get much long-term benefit from our modeling of it if they see that our heart actually isn't in it. And admission through the pearly gates definitely can't be bought by it. There is only one reason why you and I should be here, and that is because we are glad to do it. We are happy, maybe not effusively, drunkenly kind of happy, but we feel some joy in worshiping God. We know inside of ourselves at some level what an honor and privilege that it is to be invited to commune with the creator of the universe. We want to hear what that God has to say to us and our hearts just swell up at the thought that though he has the company of angels, he somehow wants to be with you and with me. And that makes us glad. This is what makes me as a preacher at 61 years of age still very glad to get up on a Sunday morning even without my mom's prompting and come to worship and I hope my gladness shows from time to time and I hope that yours does too. So first, let's resolve that we will worship the Lord with gladness. And, and maybe just as we're putting our hand on the, on the handle of the door as we're about to come in, take a pause and remember where we're entering and let it fill us up. And let, us, let it inform our face and, and walk into this place with, with even more gladness. Secondly, let's come before him with joyful songs, the psalmist tells us. Let's come before him with joyful songs. That is something else that ought to characterize the worship of God's people. In authentic worship, we will sing loud, joyful songs. Now, you probably know this, but when gladness, genuine gladness fills somebody's heart, it almost always makes a noise. When you take a popsicle and move it towards the mouth of an (laughs) 18-month-year-old, you will hear a squeal of delight, of anticipation at that encounter. When Patrick Kane scores a goal towards the end of a tight game, there is not a Blackhawks fan with a heartbeat that does not make a noise, that, that does not roar with joy. And when someone, even an ordinary person, finds themselves suddenly ushered into the presence of the most phenomenal being in all of the universe, presuming they are sensible of the conditions, then this I guarantee, their voices are going to show it. And if their voices are not showing it, it is because they still have not yet really fully understood The conditions into which they have been entering. Psalm 100 does not tell us that we will sing on key. It does not say that we will always sing organ songs or guitar songs. It just says that however we sing or whatever we sing, it will be done with joy and it will be done with gusto. Verse 1 literally reads, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. And that instruction is not just given here in the Psalms. The prophet Isaiah says, and I quote, shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. We get the same message in the New Testament. We're told that when a leper was healed of his disease by our Lord, he came back praising God in what kind of voice? In a loud voice. The book of Revelation pictures heaven as a place where in a loud voice they sing, worthy is the lamb to receive Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And when the crowd of disciples on Palm Sunday morning are criticized by the Pharisees because they began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, Jesus pointedly does not turn to his disciples and say, Pipe down, guys pipe down people, that sort of exuberance isn't dignified, no, rather Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out in their place. How many of you have ever seen or been in a Gothic cathedral? One of the most beautiful minor examples of this style is found in our own city, in the city of Chicago, the Fourth Presbyterian Church. Stop in there sometime when you're on Michigan Avenue and let the stones speak to you. I don't know if you knew this, but the design of such edifices were an attempt to actually fulfill that poetic statement of Jesus. The great Catholic author G.K. Chesterton points out that worship in the Middle Ages had become far too much of a silent and sober act. And so architects of deep Christian devotion began to design buildings that would inspire a more joyfully declarative kind of worship. To walk into a cathedral, says Chesterton, was to enter into a place where the very stones of the massive pillars and the noble arches would seem to cry out in joyful song toward God. This edifice was built with the same aspiration to declare the glory of God just by its very volume. How much better when we whom the apostle Peter calls living stones... Shout out with them. Let me be clear that you do not have to have a very good voice to fulfill this calling. You don't have to think that the melody or the arrangement or the instrumentation of that particular song or hymn perfectly suits your tastes. But if you are truly adoring God, your face will not be dour, you will not be silent, you will not be merely mumbling or whispering the words. You may sound like me, a bit like a frog when you sing, but tell me, if frogs can sit on their lily pads singing across the swamp, the virtues of Budweiser beer, as a famous Super Bowl ad once pictured, then is there any one of us who cannot find it in ourselves to stand up and to offer even a joyfully loud croak to the Lord God Himself. Think about this. Unless you've got the kind of gifts that some of the amazing musicians who prompt our service of worship this week and every week have, it will feel like a vulnerable thing to do to sing loud, joyful songs. It will feel like a risky uh, thing. do it. I stood next to one of the wonderful choir members of our church this morning, and it's scary to sing next to somebody who really can sing. Uh, It is a vulnerable act. But consider this. If God could leave the sublime comforts of heaven for a miserable stable If God could lay open His very veins upon a cross in order to express His love for you and for me, do you think it might be possible for you and for me to risk ourselves just a little bit more to express our love and gratitude toward Him? What do you think? If you have been mainly asleep for this sermon so far, come on back now because I'm going to bring it towards a close. And I want to summarize what we've covered and then send you out from this place. The emotional character of worship is meant to be gladness. Not every time. I'll say more about this in a minute. We're going to bring other emotions with us to this place. But the overall arc of our worship emotion is gladness. The acoustical character of genuine worship is at least at times joyful loudness. And finally, the devotional character of true worship is gratitude and adoration, In authentic worship, we give God our heartfelt thanks and praise. Now, I invite you to think about that also for just a moment. The psalmist puts it literally in these terms. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. And then, just in case some of us don't understand why we should actually do that, why should we give thanks and praise, the psalmist adds this, know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. Some of us know this to be true. In the deepest part of us, we personally recognize that as hard as we may have worked along life's way, we are not self-made people. We know, as Martin Luther said in the ancient hymn, that without our help, God did us make. We understand that our life is the the produce of Providential occurrences, a million gifts of grace totally beyond our control. For the Lord is good, we know this, the Lord is good and his love endures forever and his faithfulness continues throughout all generations. And we sense, some of us do, that in spite of the pains and the problems and the pitfalls and the hard passages of life, we have somehow been shepherded along a pathway in which there have actually been more blessings than there have been banes. And thus, when we come to that part of each weekend service where thanksgiving is being sung or thanksgiving is being spoken, where adoration is being offered to God for His goodness and His steadfast love and His faithfulness, Our hearts brim over with authentic worship. For some of us, it's just the natural effect of being so sensible to the conditions. I know that isn't so for all of us. Some of us are still a little bit deluded into thinking that we mostly did it for ourselves. Some of us are so busy thinking of what we must do for ourselves next Or to do for other people next that we find it hard to connect truthfully with what's going on in this place. Others of us are are blinded by the pains of our past. Or the agonies of the present that it just makes it hard for us to, to truly give thanks and praise to God. And for some of us, the words of the prayers and the songs here, they ring hollow for us. I'm not being critical. I'm just trying to state an honest fact. Maybe for all of us at some point, there are times when it just rings hollow. No shame in admitting that. But what I want to communicate today is that for those of us who find worship hollow, worship may be what we need most. In his book, The Grand Essentials, Ben Patterson tells of a time when the great Jewish rabbi Abraham Heschel was confronted with a complaint from his congregation. Some of the members of the synagogue told Heschel that the liturgy did not express what they felt, and would he please change it? Heschel wisely told them that it was not actually for the liturgy to express what they felt, It was for them to learn to feel what the liturgy expressed. As Jews, said Heschel, they were to learn the drama and say it and play it over and over again until it captured their imagination and they assimilated it into the deepest parts of their hearts. Then and only then would it be possible for them to live their own individual dramas in a redeemed way. Heschel said, praise precedes faith. First we sing, and then we believe. It's why I just love the great songs of the faith. How many of them have shepherded me into belief. It's why I delight when I see young people in this place starting to learn the great songs of the faith. Because I believe praise often precedes a heartfelt faith. First we sing, then we believe. And this is a major part of why when I come to worship with with all of you, I try to bring with me what I would call a disciplined joy. I do not mean that I try to hold back the joyful feelings I have. Honestly, when I come to worship some days, it's with anything but feelings of joy. What I mean is that I try to let the words and the act of singing or speaking in this place give rise to the joyful feelings I don't always have, but which I know at my best moments I ought to have if I fully understood the miracle of God's grace. And along with the psalmist, each week I just ask, and I invite you, I encourage you to ask. I ask of that service, of God in that service to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And most weeks, God answers that prayer. And the act of worship changes me. And I walk back out into the world able to live differently than before I came. So I hope that we will try this for ourselves, that we'll bring to worship a commitment to practicing an even more disciplined joy. And I think that if we do this, we'll discover two things. One, I think we will find that our experience of worship becomes anything but dull and lifeless. I think that by the end of our experience, we will find that we have been filled with a greater gladness than when we came, that we are able to make a more genuinely joyful noise than before, and that thanksgiving and praise are for us more than just pious words. They've become realities for us through worship. And secondly, I suspect that if we did this, if we leaned into this together, in all of the places that we worship as a congregation, that very, very few people would ever leave worship wondering who died at 9 or 1045. On the contrary, the very witness of our worship will tell them that someone lives, someone who is supremely good, whose steadfast love endures forever and whose faithfulness still speaks to all generations, and to that I say for the very last time until Easter morning, I say hallelujah, hallelujah, and to all of that I pray God's faithful servants will say amen and amen.